0: Amen. All right. God bless you, kids. God bless you, workers. Appreciate you. Well, good morning again, church. If you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do, if you could open it now to Matthew chapter 5, 33 to 37. We're continuing to work our way, kind of chapter, or not chapter, but paragraph by paragraph uh, through the Sermon on the Mount. As I mentioned last week, the Sermon on the Mount is not a sermon about how to get saved. It's important to understand that. I think it would be Probably pretty devastating if you thought that each of these paragraphs is something that you've got to do perfectly in order to get to heaven. That would be a great way to crush your soul. Uh, thankfully, that's not what this is. Uh, this is a sermon about how saved people should live as the people of God in the world. It is aspirational. It's normative. It's the standard that we're all supposed to acknowledge. We're supposed to say, yes, That that is how I should be living. Yes, that is how I should be thinking uh, today. We're, yes, that's how I should be talking. Uh, but of course, we all recognize none of us do this perfectly. So we go to the cross, we ask for mercy in prayer, we ask for grace and help so that tomorrow, by God's grace, maybe by one further degree, we could be living in line with these teachings. So it's a standard that we acknowledge and pursue And today, in the paragraph that hopefully now lies open before you, Jesus is telling his disciples that his people are to be known in the world as people of truth. Hear now the word of the Lord. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, remember that this entire section of the Sermon on the Mount is about Jesus correcting some of the false assumptions, false interpretations that were common in the day with respect to what it meant to be the people of God, what was required of the people of God as they lived and served in the world. And many of those wrong interpretations went back to the scribes and the Pharisees, and so it is here. The Pharisees in Jesus' day had all kinds of elaborate rules in terms of deciding which oaths were binding and which oaths were not. Uh, Some of it's quite ridiculous. So for example, Uh, They had determined that if you swear by Jerusalem, then your oath wasn't binding. But if you swore toward Jerusalem, then it was. Uh, Similarly, they had decided that if you swear by the temple, then your oath isn't binding. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, then your oath is binding. They invented a very complicated system, which only they understood, which effectively allowed them to appear to be telling the truth when, in fact, they were not. And Jesus condemns this sort of nonsense out of hand. He says, my people aren't going to engage in this. This is ridiculous. My people are just going to tell the truth straight up without their fingers crossed behind their back every time. Jesus spoke about this matter again in Matthew 23, although this time, in Matthew 23, he's speaking directly to the inventors of this ridiculous system. He's speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, so he leans in pretty hard. He says, woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath, you blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So again, this is Jesus not accepting the bar that was commonly accepted in the culture. The scribes and the Pharisees had invented a system with numerous loopholes and escape clauses. And Jesus says, enough, we're not doing this. You've poked so many holes in this system that it is worthless. My people will have nothing to do with it if you are my disciple. You're not gonna swear by the temple. You're not gonna swear by the gold of the temple. You're not going to swear by the head, the hairs in your head, anything growing out of your head. You're not going to swear by any of that. What you're going to do is tell the truth. You're going to let your yes be yes and your no be no, and we're going to leave it at that. I'm officially raising the bar, Jesus says. I'm expecting more from you than this ridiculous system devised by the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, that's right in line, it's right at peace with everything Jesus is doing in the sermon. This section of the sermon is really about Jesus raising the bar, isn't it? You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. How noble is it that you haven't seduced your neighbor's wife? You're not supposed to seduce your neighbor's wife. Nobody's going to notice that. Nobody's going to appreciate that. That's not going to lead to any conversations about Jesus. So I'm raising the bar, right? We're going to talk about lust now. We're going to talk about thoughts. We're going to talk about eyes, right? Raising the bar. that's what Jesus is doing here. It's about raising the bar from where the scribes and the Pharisees had set it. And to be honest with you, that's a bit of a mindset shift for many of us. Maybe not exclusively. Maybe these things change from generation to generation. I don't know. But it feels like in the evangelical church in, in my lifetime, we have typically talked about the Pharisees almost as if they were, you know, actually way better than us in terms of righteousness. They just didn't understand the gospel, Right? we would sort of raise them up and say, well, if only we were as committed as the the Pharisees. And if only, you know, they were great guys. They just needed the gospel. That is 100% not how, how they're presented in the Bible. It's not as though Jesus says, man, if only you could be like the Pharisees with an understanding of the gospel, you guys would be on track. No, Jesus completely invalidates the system and definitions of the scribes and the Pharisees. So he's not saying, you know, by and large, imitate their effort level imitate their zeal, imitate their righteousness, but now grab onto grace. That's 100% not what he's saying. He's saying they're way off track. Their system is basically infected with pride, hypocrisy, and deceit, have nothing to do with it. Listen to what he says in Matthew 5.20 at the start of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus saying, understand this, If you think you can live at the level of righteousness exemplified by the Pharisees and get into heaven, you're dead wrong. I'm expecting more from my followers. And that's a piece, I'll be honest with you, brothers and sisters, that is a piece we need to re-inject into our understanding of Christianity. How many of us think that basically Jesus didn't adjust the bar, he just jumped over it for us? And so now we can be like, oh, thanks, Jesus, and go and do whatever we like. There there is a strain of that thinking, a thick, wide strain of that thinking in evangelicalism. And it has to be replaced with what is actually in the Bible. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I am raising the bar for you, right? I am expecting more from you than this old fallen down system. I'm expecting more from you, but good news, I'm going to give more to you. That's biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is Jesus saying, I'm going to expect more from you, and I'm going to give more to you. Think of of what we get. right? We get a new heart. We get the gift of the Holy Spirit. We get the intercession of Jesus, whoever lives before the Father, to make intercession for us. So all of that is amazing. And on the basis of that, yes, Jesus does raise the bar. Not so that we can keep these things so as to get into heaven, but so that we can represent him well as his ambassador's In the world, that matters. And that's what we see in the Bible. So of course, it is all of grace, right? Jesus does it for us, but then also Jesus does it through us. Isn't that the piece we often leave out? As he makes his testimony to the world. It's all of grace, but with the grace that he supplies, he's telling his disciples here in this paragraph, they need to be radically committed to telling the truth. No loopholes, no escape clauses, No fingers crossed behind your back. Just tell the truth. Straight up every time. That's the basic principle being set forward here. Now, I'll be honest with you, this is one of those passages that's relatively easy to explain, right? All you have to do is do a little bit of homework on behalf of the church and explain to them here was this ridiculous system that Jesus, you know. And once you see that, you're like, okay, I get it. Right. Don't be, don't do play nonsense games with the truth. Tell the truth. Yes. Easy to understand, remarkably difficult to apply. And of course, you may know there's been some controversy about how to apply this passage. So we'll spend most of our time this morning on the matter of application. And I want to begin in in a bit of an unusual place. I want to begin with a wrong application. So don't don't write this down. Uh, Or write it down, but write it down the right way. I want to start with a, a wrong application. This passage, I don't think this passage is intending to say at all that it is wrong for Christians to take an oath in court. Now, you may know that over the years, uh, many Quakers, Anabaptists, and Jehovah's Witnesses have, in fact, taught that very thing, but most Christians over the ages have not. D.A. Carson says helpfully here, some people think this prohibits them from taking oaths in a courtroom or from taking an oath of allegiance. Their desire to obey God's word is admirable, but I submit that they have not really understood it, understood the text. As usual, Jesus is preaching in antithetical fashion, and it's important to discover just what he is saying before we take his statement with such insensitive absoluteness. That's a good phrase, isn't it? Maybe you're sitting beside somebody who is somewhat inclined to insensitive absoluteness. Feel free to do one of these in love. There's a fair bit of insensitive absoluteness in the church, there always has been, so we want to be on the lookout for that. As, as Carson points out here, uh, Jesus is teaching in antithetical fashion. It's a rhetorical device. You have heard it said, but I say to you, he's contrasting the way of righteousness as he defines it to the way of righteousness that had been established by the scribes and the Pharisees. You've heard it said, but I say to you. That's antithetical teaching. So Jesus is not saying that all oaths in every imaginable situation are bad. He is saying this whole system of truth-telling devised by the scribes and Pharisees is ridiculous. I'm rejecting it out of hand. Now, how do we know we're right about that? Well, for one thing, the Apostle Paul put himself on oath in several places throughout the New Testament. You've probably stumbled across those in your Bible reading. So, for example, in Romans 1.9, he puts himself under oath. 2 Corinthians 1.23, he puts himself under oath when matters of truth are at stake. And then, of course, most compellingly of all, Jesus testified under oath the end of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 26, 63 to 64 says, Then the high priest said to Jesus, I put you under oath before the living God. Tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said, You have said so, but I tell you from now on you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So, if Jesus testified under oath in Matthew 26, then I'm guessing that's not what he was forbidding in Matthew chapter 5. Rather, what he's saying here has to do with the personal conduct of his followers in the world. That's so important for us to understand. This is not, this is not a, a law directed at the government. This is not a law directed at the unusual circumstance of you being compelled to testify in a government court. It's about you living your daily life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther points that out in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Christ does not wish here to interfere with the secular authority and ordinance, nor to detract at all from the powers that be. But he is preaching here only for the individual Christians, how they are to conduct themselves in their ordinary life. So, followers of Jesus in their ordinary lives are not to say, I swear by heaven that, that you know, I didn't do such and such, or I swear by the Virgin Mary that I will do such and such, or, as you still see people doing today, I swear on the life of my child or on the grave of my mother that I will keep such and such a vow to you. Jesus is saying, my people aren't going to do that, okay? We don't need to do that. That's nonsense. That's just a way of you pretending that you're telling the truth or trying to communicate that you tell the truth because you don't normally tell the truth. I'm just saying enough with all of that. Nuts to all of that. My people are just going to tell the truth. That's the essence of the passage. Now, what does that look like for people like us living in the 21st century? Of course, the immediate application of this in the first century was Jesus saying his followers are not going to participate in this ridiculous system of which things are true and which things are only half true and which things are mostly true but not all the way true. It's just, psst, we're not going to have anything to do with that. My people are just going to tell the truth straight up. That was the application of the first century. What's the application for us? Because that system, by and large, is dead in our day. So what would it look like for the followers of Jesus to be people of truth in this culture today. That's what I want to get at. I want to suggest to you that it means at least three things, maybe more, but these are the three things that come most immediately to mind. First of all, the followers of Jesus should be known as people who tell the truth even when the truth is embarrassing. That's one of the things we notice when we read the Bible, isn't it? The Bible tells all kinds of embarrassing stories that I'm not 100% sure should be there. Uh, right? In in terms of, if I were the PR department, if anybody hired me as the PR department for the Bible, which by the way is never going to happen, so don't worry about it, hypothetical scenario here. But there are all kinds of stories I would say, you know what? Ah, Maybe that shouldn't be in there. How about the story of David and Bathsheba? Is that helpful? It's an unusual decision. David is arguably the most important character in the Old Testament, He is the character in the Old Testament that most immediately and obviously anticipates Christ. He is the character in the Old Testament that it basically establishes a lot of our paradigms for what leadership looks like. So why in the world, why in the world would the Bible include the story of his most grievous sin and horrific personal failure? Why would they do that? The answer, of course, is because it's true. It happened, and God's people need to acknowledge what has happened. God's people need to live in the light. God's people need to tell the truth. God's people need to deal in truth, even when it's embarrassing. Hiding the truth, covering up the truth, can never be an accepted strategy within the house of the Lord. We say amen to that? Many of you are probably aware of the independent report that was released this past week. Actually, it was last Sunday, detailing the horrific sexual abuse that went on within the Southern Baptist Convention that was, it turns, covered up and wrongly reported for over 20 years by a select group of people in power. And the, the reasons, by the way, that full report is available online. I saw it this, and then you say, why are you pulling out these obscure things? This is on every American major news source. I saw it on CNN. I saw it on Fox News. I checked to see. where It's everywhere. It doesn't make for easy reading turns out that all this stuff was going you know person x or a would commit a, a child abuse or something here and 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 then the kind of just be buried and shuffled and he would just disappear and then whoa look he turned up over here and did the same thing 10 years later and it was terrific and and once the problem once folks became aware that this was being done that this was a problem folks in charge didn't want to do anything or say anything because the old argument was, well, you know, it'll, whew, think of the shame that will come to the name of Christ as, as a result of this, and think, and people will stop giving to missions, and people will stop trusting the, the pastor. Oh, my friends, when you start thinking like that, the game's over. You're not the people of God anymore anyway. It's, it's a disaster, right? Horrible things. We need to say a couple things about that. First of all, most importantly, we need to express sympathy for the victims, when stuff like this is done and it's done by somebody claiming to represent Jesus, man, that's soul-crushing. And we need to express our sympathy to all the individuals and the families that were affected by that. The Bible says to weep with those who weep. And then as well, secondly, we need to mourn and lament the dishonor that is being heaped upon the name of Jesus this week in particular because of these events. I kid you not, my friends, the fallout from this will be worse than the fallout from the televangelist scandal in the 80s. Do you remember that? If you're, a, if you're probably, I would say my age or older, I actually remember where I was in the car when I heard that. I think it was on six, uh, or what it was, whatever the news station was at the time. I think it was 1010 CFRB. I was in the car with my mother. I literally remember this. I don't remember everything that happened in my childhood, but I remember this. I was a teenager at the time. And, uh, and I remember being in the car, hearing that on the radio, And just thinking to myself as a teenager, I will be explaining this to my friends and everyone else I try to share the gospel with for the rest of my life. What a disaster. I remember thinking that. This will be worse. And I'll tell you why. Because remember back in the 80s, it was actually pretty easy to distance ourselves from the televangelists. Was anybody even sure that those guys were on our team? Like, what in the world? So you could say, well, those people are nuts. And, and, you know, we, and we did, didn't we? Didn't we do as much as, of this as we could? Try to put some distance between us and them. How do you do that here? This is the largest evangelical denomination in the world. It's a scandal you're going to be dealing with for the rest of your life. The Apostle Paul said to the corrupt Jewish leaders of his day, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So it is again today select group of people bearing our name, claiming to hold the same faith that we have, has done terrible, despicable things that have now been associated with the name of Jesus Christ to our everlasting shame. We need to be mourning that today. And yet, and yet, if there is one positive that's come out of this whole thing, It is this. It is the fact that the Southern Baptist messengers, the messengers are the people that you send from your church to go and and deal with denominational issues when they have their annual assembly. The messengers, once they got wind of this, forced the denomination to tell the truth publicly, forced the denomination to hire an independent third-party investigation, knowing that it would embarrass them, knowing that it would destroy them, knowing that they would be explaining this debacle to their friends and loved ones for the rest of their lives. Why in the world would they do that? Because Christians tell the truth, even when it's embarrassing. The truth is always, always the best policy. You might think there's a short-term game in covering this up. That was the argument, right? Oh, you know, how are we gonna raise money for missions? How are we gonna... You might think there's a short-term game for covering it up. You always pay double or triple in the end if you go that route. You know that, right? Same thing in a marriage. Husbands, maybe wives, right? I've been in pastoral ministry long enough to know this story goes both ways. Any spouses in the room with an embarrassing truth that needs to be told to their spouse? And you tell a story to yourself, right? You're like, oh, but it'll hurt the kids and Oh, you know, it'll make a. Yeah, it will. But I'll promise you this you cover it up and it comes out a decade from now, some other way, which it will, and you'll pay double, triple, or worse. Honesty is always, without exception, the best policy. That's true in marriage, it's true in a church. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, and he, and he said, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. But verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. You see that? Isn't that a wise approach? He says, now listen, we're not going to just deal with every your rumor. and it's, We can't make it so easy for the devil to bring people down just with a whisper or rumor. So we're going to have a standard of truth, okay? But if there is credible evidence of something having been done, we're not hiding it. We're not covering it up. We're not sweeping it under the carpet. We will rebuke them publicly. The witness of the church is worth more than whatever immediate gain you think there may be in sweeping something under the carpet. It's worth more than any leader. How many times have churches swept stuff under the rug because it's like, well, we can't afford to lose that guy. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You know what you can't afford to lose? Integrity in the public square. And so you tell the truth. That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. you got to live your life in the light, no matter what that light exposes. So the followers of Jesus today got to be truth people, even when the truth is embarrassing, and even when it is personally disadvantageous. That's our... Our second point there. Now, this is a slightly different thing than the first thing. Here I'm talking about telling a truth that might not be embarrassing, but that will cost you money or personal consequence. King David talked about that in Psalm 15. He said, O oh Lord, who's, who shall sojourn in your tent? Lord, who are, you gonna, who are you gonna bring close? Who are you gonna have in your inner circle? Verse two, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right, speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Just pause there, look at verse three. You realize that you can sacrifice your opportunity to be part of God's inner circle, to be part of like the one that he's gonna give the best assignments to. You realize you can forfeit that opportunity by how you conduct yourself on Twitter. Maybe I'll read that again. Who gets to be in the inner circle? Who gets to be on call? The one who does not slander. The one who does no evil to a neighbor nor takes up approach, meaning joins in on an attack on another person, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Here we go. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Boy, that's a good one. I like that phrase. Who swears to his own hurt. That, that takes us exactly into what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. To swear to your own hurt means telling the truth even when it costs you, it means telling the truth, even when it will increase the consequences that you're likely to incur. But that's what the Bible requires of anyone who would be closely associated with God. Old Testament anew. When I was in grade ten, a buddy and I devised a foolproof plan for skipping school and getting away with it. We were pretty sharp, I must say. Uh, we were rural kids, and so we took the bus to school, and, uh, and we realized that's the weak link in the chain right there because our moms would know if we got on the bus, but they would have no idea what we did when we got off the bus. Now, this was before you got that automated phone call when your kids skipped school. By the way, <laughs> praise the Lord for that. Hey, eh? isn't that great? <laughs> Amen. I like that. But they didn't have that. They probably invented that because of my brilliant plan from high school. (laughs) So anyway, we rode the bus to Aurora High School that day, my buddy and I, just like we did every day. But on this particular day, we decided to execute the plan. We got off the bus, and instead of going into homeroom, we marched ourselves down to McDonald's and bought as many Big Macs as we could afford, And we spent the whole day eating Big Macs, smoking cigars, and playing video games at the convenience store across the road. (laughs) That was our big plan. It was good. Now, to be clear, I'm not. Don't write that down in the notes. I'm not advocating any of this. All right, I'm just telling the truth. Anyway, after our big day of rebellion and nonsense, we walked back to school, got back on the school bus, and went home with none the wiser feeling pretty brilliant for having devised a foolproof plan. When I walked in the door of our house, my mom was standing there, and she asked me, how was your day at school, son? And I said, you know what? It was really good. Thanks for asking. I, uh, I made progress against my life goals. I worked hard. I feel like I became a better person. I appreciate your, <laughs> your interest. And she said, you know, that's funny, because you had a dentist appointment today at 2 o'clock, And uh, when I came to pick you up at school and they paged you over the intercom, nobody came because you weren't there. So how about you tell me again, son, how was your day at school? (laughs) See, my mom was a ninja. I tried to sin a lot as a kid, but her and Jesus had something worked out and I never got away with it. Praise the Lord. But anyway, that's not even the point of the story. The point of the story is that the jig was up, the school knew what I had done, because of my ridiculous dentist appointment, right? I'm sure there's a lesson there. Um, And so now, facing consequences, facing possible suspension. My friend convinced his mom to write him a note saying that he had been absent with her permission. I asked my mom for a note like that, and that did not go well. I said, but mom, if you don't write me a note, I could get suspended. That's going to go on my permanent record. I'll never be able to get a good job and take you on a cruise right? Well, you should have thought about that before you skipped school and spent the whole day eating Big Macs and smoking cigars at McDonald's. Fair point. So the next day she marched me into the principal's office and she sat there in the waiting room listening in on my confession through a crack in the door. I had been directed to confess my sins and to embrace all consequences, which I did. I said to the principal, I am a sinner I ate Big Macs and smoked cigars at McDonald's instead of going to class, and I gladly and humbly accept any and all consequences. The principal looked at me, and then he looked at the angry face of my mom through the crack in the door, and he realized that nothing he could do to me was going to touch what she was going to do to me. (laughs) So he let me off with a warning. But I learned an important lesson that day. If you're going to tell people you're a Christian, which I had done, then you have to be known as a person of truth. You have to tell the truth in every situation, even at the cost of your own hurt. Followers of Jesus tell the truth when it's embarrassing. They tell the truth when it is costly. And then lastly today, followers of Jesus tell the truth even when no one in the world wants to hear about it. That was the job given to Isaiah the prophet in the Old Testament. I don't know if you remember that. Remember that story? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and he was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. The angels cried holy. Anyway, uh, you remember the story. I'm sure we all love the story, but do you remember how it ends? Uh, He saw the Lord high and lifted up. The angels cried holy. He said, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Do you remember that? A seraph flew with a coal from the altar, cleansed his lips, and then God said, whom shall I send? And you remember what Isaiah said? He said, here am I, send me. Right, great story. We tell that to the kids in Sunday school. We got a song for that, or at least we did back in the 80s. Uh, but have you ever, they don't make songs about the commission that Isaiah was given. Do you remember, did you ever read that? Worst commission ever. After, this is what happens when you volunteer, right? Here am I, send me. That's where you end the story if you're a good Sunday school teacher uh, because the commission is actually awful. God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy. Do you know, the more you hear when you're not listening, the worse you get at hearing. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. So God says, go and preach to a bunch of people who aren't gonna listen to you, who are too far gone to actually embrace what it is you have to say. Preach, preach justice and mercy. Call on them to return, to repent, to come home. But understand this, no one will listen. No one will care. No one will come. And Isaiah is like, How long? Like, Lord, how long? Are you talking like for a week? Are you talking for a month? Are you talking for a year? How long do you want me to do this? And God says, To the end. See, I'm sending you out actually after the point of no return. You're preaching at a time when hearts are hard, when ears are closed. When there's just so much momentum in the direction of sin and rebellion that nobody's coming back. They're just going to keep on going down that road until the time of judgment, destruction, and exile that I have ordained for them. That was the commission given to Isaiah. Tell the truth in a time when absolutely nobody wants to hear it. And he did. He spoke truth to power. He told the truth about sin, holiness, and judgment at a time when no one was listening and as the story goes, he paid the ultimate price for so doing. Jewish tradition says that Isaiah was sawn in two by the wicked king Manasseh. Which, by the way, is the story we believe lies behind Hebrews eleven thirty-six 36 to 37. Remember that in the Faith Hall of Fame? The apostle says others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. That's what happens to people who tell the truth in a time when no one wants to hear it. Do you have that kind of courage, church? Because you may just need it in the years and decades to come. Jesus' people tell the truth. They don't look for loopholes. They don't deal in excuses. They don't make promises or tell stories with their fingers crossed behind their backs. They tell the truth straight up, with no equivocation or deceit. They represent the king. And so they understand that every time they open their mouth, they are taking his reputation into their own hands. So they put a hand over their mouths. They measure their words. They tell the truth. Even when it's embarrassing, even when it costs them personally, Even when no one wants to hear it, they tell the truth. Is there a truth you need to tell this week? Is there a truth you have been dreading to tell? But under conviction today, you know that you need to tell. And do it. Tell it straight. Tell it fair. Tell it true. Because you're a Christian, and Christians tell the truth. Oh, God, help. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bar. This is where it should be. We acknowledge that today, Lord. This is where the bar should be. But we also acknowledge our weakness. We acknowledge that we have not always met that bar. We have not always lived according to that standard. So we ask for grace and mercy in Jesus' name. But now also, Lord, we ask for help so that this week we can live by that bar. We can be people of truth, people who tell the truth when it's embarrassing, when it costs us, and even in situations where we, there is something we need to say that has to be said that no one wants to hear. Oh God, help us do that. Help us be salt and light. Help us be ambassadors. Help us be truth-tellers. Help us to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.